When's the last time you thought, I would never have done that? Maybe it was at work this past week when one of those most recent hires that somebody just don't like just really messed up a job. And you looked at them and said, I, I, I was never that bad when I started here. Or you're a proud member, as some of you are, of an, of, of a, of an older generation, looking around at all the, all the youngins walking around. And you turn to another member of your grain group, and you say, when I was a boy or girl, we had our heads on rights. We had it straight. Or scrolling through social media, uh, you're, you're, you're reading clearly ridiculous theological takes online. And it takes everything within yourself, or those of you with less self-control actually type it and send it. You think, how on earth could anyone possibly think that? Or one of you kids here, or maybe all of you kids here, because this was me. And parents, when you were younger, you, you think this 99.9% .9 of the time. When I grow up, I would never do that. It's so easy to look backward or forward to a wayward generation assume I would have done it better. I think that's our default. I would have done it better. Whether it be age, status, education, progress of some sort, if you had to do it all over again, you'd say, I would never do the same thing. I would never make that mistake. I've learned. History proves otherwise over and over and over and over again. You are no better. You standing or you sitting on those, on those pews right now are no better nor no worse than anyone who's come before you or anyone who's coming after you. And this is especially true at the end of John 12. At the conclusion of what they call the book of science, which is John 1 through 12. If you, if you know your Old Testament well, it's, it's stiff-necked Israelites basically from Genesis 1 until the end of Malachi. They just don't get it right, ever. And so they think then, like, oh, we've got everything. We're better. We can do this. You read the very first verse, and it says, at the end of everything Jesus had just taught, they didn't believe. They didn't trust him. They who walked with the incarnate Son of God saw the signs, all his signs in the world. They don't, it's not just properly, improperly understanding him, it's they just don't believe. No, you're not who you say you are. And we, we think this can be due to a lack of knowledge or not properly understanding, but it's, it's simple unbelief. The goal isn't to strengthen your faith muscles. It's to have your faith placed on the righteous one. It's not more knowledge, although that's good. It's correct faith. And a few weeks ago, you heard the very ends that the nations were streaming in to meet Jesus. And he says, now is my hour. Now the hour has come. Now I'm going to tell you what I came here to do. So he tells them, do they believe? No. No. That's not who we thought you would be. 
This guy standing in front of us, that's not the Jesus I want. I want a different Jesus. Today you're going to hear about belief in the face of evidence and the solution for that belief or solution for that unbelief. See, these three points. The first is root of unbelief. This is verse 37 to 39a. So the first part of verse 39. It's not how smart you are. It's not how concentrated you are. It's not how progressed you think humanity might be. It's hard-heartedness. That's what causes unbelief. The second is reason for unbelief. Why do we not believe? This is verses 39b, so the second part to verse 43. It boils down to this. It's, it's glory. It's not looking to the glory of the Son. It's looking to the glory of, of my heart, of your heart. And so I hope this is clear throughout. Christ has opened your eyes to see the glory of the Father in Christ. So we're going to start with point one in verse 37, the roots of unbelief. So let me ask you another question, just like we started off with. What would you expect after, you can call it like the perfect gospel-centered sermon from the Lord Jesus Christ himself? You're like, surely if anybody can do it right and get everyone to believe, it's Jesus. Jesus spoke like they're going to believe. But if you look at verse 37... They still did not believe in him. Even though it's, it's a perfect sermon. It, it's, the, it's the perfect pitch for belief. And it says, still did not believe. And you can think, well, if I was there, I would have believed. I would have figured it out. These, no, 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 they, they don't got it. I, I, I would have gotten it. I would have figured this out. After 12 chapters of sign after sign after sign performed by the hand of the Son of God incarnates, they don't believe. It's as if humanity itself, it just doesn't get better. We think we're progressing towards something and the gospel over and over and over says you're not progressing to anything besides judgments. That's what you're progressing towards. And we so often think, but I would have done better. If I, if I were in that situation, I would have done better. I would have believed. If I, if I were in Adam's shoes, Adam and Eve's shoes, I would have figured it out. So John turns to, to one of the very few, and he, he very rarely does this. When he does this, you should pay attention. He, he goes to one of those very few fulfillment texts in the Gospel of John. It's something like, and thus it was fulfilled, or this was fulfilled, the Scripture was fulfilled. So if you look at verse 38, he does this. What does he pull from? If you have a, a cross-reference, it'll show you. He pulls right the middle of the most famous servant song in all of Isaiah. Isaiah 52 to 53, which some of us know really well. He's pierced for our transgressions. It would please the Lord to strike him for our iniquities. It's that song, and he inserts right in the middle. This servant will be mocked, stricken, beaten, downcast, which is the end of Isaiah 53, placed on the shoulders. Doesn't revile back. He doesn't pay back. He suffers for unholiness, for mockery, for every evil ever done against him. 
And then he cries out, and this is the middle, this is Isaiah 53, 1, that John references. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He cries out to Yahweh, originally Isaiah and Isaiah 53, but what he's saying is this is actually Jesus who cries this out. Lamenting to people who do not believe and then cry, save them because of me. At the end of Isaiah 53, they don't want me, but I'm saving them. They do everything they can to mock me, but I'm saving them. I'm saving you. For this arm, which is Isaiah 53, 1, and now John 12, 38, this arm is now revealed. The arm of the Lord is now revealed to them. It was revealed to you. It's been revealed throughout the prophetic ministry of Isaiah who pointed towards the true and righteous prophet, Jesus Christ. He's, he's saying, wait for the arm. And then Jesus is saying, I am the arm. I'm the one who's revealing this righteousness to you. That's me. It, it, you would think that'll get them, right? The incarnate Lord comes in and, and the, the light turns on. But what does it actually do? It further presses unbelief. It actually doesn't open their eyes. It further presses this unbelief. What is, what is balm for the soul of you who are in Christ? This is balm. Him saying, I- I'm him. And that's good. That's for those who are outside of Christ, say, get that as far away from me as you possibly can. I want nothing. The same revealing can do both. It can, it can pull us towards him or it can push us farther away from him. And so the verse, first part of verse 39, it describes this. Notice what it says, beginning in verse 39. It doesn't say, well, against this, it says, therefore, they could not believe. Notice what it follows. After the arm of the Lord had been revealed. Therefore, they're pushed further into unbelief. Or those who believe further into belief. It's not lack of knowledge. It's not because their ears are unplugged or plugged or their eyes just turn their gaze. It's because they saw him. No. I don't want that. At the Lord Jesus' incarnation, similar to Isaiah's commissioning in Isaiah 6, when he sees the Lord lifted up and, and the Lord tells him, you're going to preach to a people who will not believe a word you say. And I want you to do that. And now their eyes are blinded and hearts are hardened because he's been revealed. Because now they, they see the incarnate Lord for who he is. So this then is the root of unbelief. It's actually his revealing, which is the crazy thing. It's not because he pulls himself back. It's because he shows himself. And they say, no, I don't want it. So what's the point? Why blind sinners? Why push them even further away from the Lord? Have you ever, have you ever wondered that? 
Why harden them and say, come to me, but I'm going to harden you? Have you ever wondered those questions? What's going to bring us to point two, the reason for unbelief. This is, this is why he does this. John turns back on the scroll. This is 39b up until verse 40. He says, for, I, for again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I will heal them. You know, I don't, I don't expect this to land well with a lot of people. I don't expect them to hear this and say, like, yeah, that's the kind of God I want to I believe. That's the kind of God I want to follow. I don't expect that. Because at first glance, if you, just, if you just read the text on the page at first glance, if you're being honest with yourself, it sounds as if the Lord is punishing them for what he did to them. I'm going to harden you, and now I'm going to punish you because you're hardened. You're like, why would I follow that kind of God? Why would I follow God who hardens and says, because you're hardened, I'm going to push you even further? Sounds like a tyrant, less of a God. But we're going to see what he's actually saying. It's because you should wrestle with this. You should wrestle with these texts. We love the doctrine of predestination. Don't get me wrong. We love it. This is within our, our Christian heritage. This is within our confession of faith. It's a wonderful doctrine. But I think it should punch first. I think it should hit us first before we love this. If you're here and you think, how could God do a, such a thing like this? How could he possibly do this? Maybe you've heard this from somebody else. I can't possibly believe in that kind of God who would harden and then punish for hardening. I think you're wrestling with that text pretty well. I think that's a good wrestling. But let me ask you, if you have as yet to believe in Jesus, and in fact, if you've rejected Jesus, that kind of feels like you. Like, I rejected Jesus. I don't need him to harden me. I rejected him. This text says, you rejected him because he has hardened you. Even though you don't feel it, you still reject it. You don't feel coerced. Like, I did that. Do you feel coerced as if your hand was steadied to stiff-arm him? It's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to push him. Or if you love him, you love him. It's a mystery of mysteries how the Lord can harden. And yet if you reject him, you don't feel hardened. You don't feel far off. At least you don't think you feel far off. It's not as though after, before the hardening you were, you were kind of innocent and kind of frolicking in the fields, doing your own thing. But you were at enmity with the holy God. His holiness, you can say, is what hardens. Him showing himself for who he is further hardens. The more you get to know who he is, like, that's not who I want. That's not who I want. You can say, like we just see with Jesus, when he shows himself incarnated in human flesh, it's like, this is me. They're like, get far from me. I don't want anything to do with you. There are mysteries way too deep for us to understand. But I ask you to keep wrestling with this. It's a good wrestling. 
The word of God both opens and shuts hearts. As Isaiah has told during his commissioning as a prophet of God. The, the, the word of God opens and shuts hearts, as Isaiah was told, during his commissioning as a prophet of God. And now the prophet of prophets comes. Because remember, Isaiah 6, when he's shown the high and lifted up Lord, what does the Lord tell him? Go preach to people who are not going to listen to you. Go show yourself to people who are not going to accept you. And not even they're going to soften. They're going to get harder. When you preach to them, they're going to get harder. And now we see Jesus, and now he's not just the prophet they're being pointed towards. He's saying, I am that prophet. You're going to get harder against me, or you will soften against me. There's no neutrality. And so Isaiah wasn't staring at some unfathomable lights in Isaiah 6, when it's his high and lifted up throne, the formlessness of Yahweh upon the throne. But as verse 47 says, if you look, or 41, it says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. And who is his? That's Christ. This is the pre-incarnate Christ. When, when, the, when the Lord is telling him, go preach to these people, he's saying, that's me. You're preaching me. You're preaching me to the people who either say no or say yes, who harden or who soften. And we can think of the, the prophets sometimes like doom and gloom. Like just death and just destruction. Everything's going go to go to, go to the toilet. Everything's going to the trash. You guys can't do anything. Shape up, figure it out. Trust in God. Message of doom and gloom, fire and brimstone. Shape up or God's going to get you. Sometimes we can, we can look at the prophets somewhat like that. You're... you're your tremendous failures, they could tell Israel. And God can't wait to smite you. Well, we'll sometimes think the prophets, that's what they say. But what, is it, what, do they actually, what do they actually preach? According to John 12, 41. They preach Christ. Not just doom and gloom, they preach Christ. Well, he didn't name Christ, he described him. He's saying, yes, there's this law you can't uphold. There's this law that you have failed over and over and over and over again. But there's one coming who's going to obey it. Trust in that. And this gets heated, really, from Isaiah 40 onwards. That's when the servant songs start. When everything from Isaiah 1 to 39 is, you can't do this, you're heading to exile. Isaiah 40 says, there's one coming who's going to do this. And you will not be in exile. That's, that's what's being done here. The gospel is not shape up and try harder. The gospel is now that the law is fulfilled, keep a new one. Keep a harder one. The gospel is not even Jesus is happy with you now, but if you slip up, you got to keep him happy. It's not even Jesus has saved you, now go and work. 
That's not what the gospel is. It is simply, and it's what Isaiah preached, and it's what Jesus is preaching. Jesus Christ paid for your sins and gave you perfect righteousness. Full stop. That's the gospel. So we come to verses 42 to 43, which, to be honest, have been really misunderstood. Really misunderstood. They get mangled so, so much more into, like, kind of try harder. Like, really work that faith and try harder. If you fail, like, woe to you. You're really not worthy of being God's servants. Almost like if you fear man, your faith isn't big enough. That's, that's not biblical faith. What do these, ver- what do these verses actually tell you? How does verse 42 begin? Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him. Notice what follows actually doesn't question that. It questions their, pro, their confession as if they're, they're telling people, but it doesn't question the faith. It doesn't question who they see Jesus as. It's not, they didn't really believe in Jesus or else they wouldn't have done this. Or the rulers thought they believed, but they really didn't. But they believed and they were fearful of persecution. I'm going to say, these rulers are you. These rulers are me. I'm taking nothing away from their belief in Christ, the object of their faith. John is is well aware of the temple system. And he's, he's not excusing them, but he's aware. Because we're the only place. It's not like you have a bunch of options for church. There's one temple. That's it. If you get thrown out, you don't worship. And so they believe in Jesus and everything else there is they don't believe in this blasphemer. Or else we're going to kick you out of the temple. If they confessed their belief, they'd be treated like Jesus being followers of a supposed blasphemer. He's not condoning their actions. He's trying to make it make sense. Look, at, look carefully at verse 43. And notice what he uses. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So often this is used, they love the glory of man because they didn't love the glory of God. As they loved it more than. Of course you don't want to love it more than. But he's still saying there's love of God. There's, there's a seedling. There's something there. And to be honest, what, beyond really anything, what better describes the Christian life? You love God, and to, if you're really honest with yourself, you also, you love man. He's not condoning it, but he understands the human heart. On this side of glory, we're still going to fear. Again, not condoning it, but he understands you. Though you've been declared righteous on account of, of the work of Jesus Christ, do you not fear anymore? Are you not scared one day when persecution comes, you're going to say, yeah, I would, I would totally defend the faith. I would not cower in fear. I'd be bold. I think we want to believe that. But a lot of us haven't been tested. 
like this. You still doubt. You still fear. I'm not saying it's okay if you don't. You're called to claim this faith. There's no question about it. He tells us to, conf- to confess our faith. Matthew 28, being the Great Commission, going tell the nations. But he's not saying because they didn't, it's because they didn't believe. He's saying they believed, but there's a whole complex system that makes it really hard to tell others. And so his desire to be a faithful proclaimer of the mercies found in Jesus Christ. But if you don't, it's not to question your faith. It's like, do I really believe this? Because it's not on your profession. It's on the thing your profession is on. It's the object of the faith that gives you confidence. Not your obedience that gives you confidence. And yet we haven't answered the question. How do you go from unbelief to belief? Because notice, he hasn't really answered that question yet. There's belief, we know why it happens, but, but how do you get it? Which brings us to our last point, Redeemer from unbelief. As Isaiah cried out to a nation in the book of Isaiah, to a, who had heard about what God had done to redeem their fathers out of sin and slavery. The Exodus was the big story. That's what they would tell their children, their children's children, their children's children's children, as we're told in Deuteronomy. Tell this to everybody who comes after you. And they don't. They forget. They're thrown into exile. So Jesus cries out in verse 44, not whoever believes in the one to come. He says, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. He's saying, believe in the one who promised land and seed to Abraham. Believe in the one who took upon himself the burden of covenant keeping when he talked with Abraham. Believe in the one who brought Joseph from the pit of despair to the heights of Egyptian authority. Believe in the one who took Moses from the the river of destruction to the Redeemer of Egypt, and so on and so on. He's saying, that one, that God who did that, that's me. I have come in incarnate form. I've taken on human flesh, and I am he. I am the servant of Yahweh, he says, who, who doesn't speak of one who's coming. As Isaiah says, there's a servant coming who's going to do this for you. He says, I am that servant who has done this for you. Believe in me who has taken the burden of your sin upon myself. I have obeyed for you. I have taken the burden of that unbelief. I have taken that burden of sin. I have taken that burden of iniquity. I have taken that burden of doubt. He says, I have placed it on me. And verses 45 to 46, he's come to make the invisible God, the invisible Redeemer, he's made him visible. The fullness of the Godhead that dwells in a body. Displaying the entirety of the glory of Yahweh in bodily form. And not just displaying, but doing. 
doing in thoughts and word and deed, and now proclaim to you, if you see me and trust me, you have seen and trusted in the Father. That one who you mocked, that one who you didn't believe, that one who you dismayed, that's who you believe in now. Then a verse, I think, as well, that's been misunderstood in verse 47. It's been used to kind of justify a, a judgeless Christ. Kind of pulled out of context, like, that's the, that's the Jesus you believe? Well, this is the Jesus I believe. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. Like, yes. Yes, I don't have to be judged. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Here's where you got to be careful of two things. One, keep reading. Number two is distinguish. And it's distinguished between his first coming, which he's talking about, and his second coming. Because, to be honest, his first coming actually wasn't his judge. It was to save. It was to be judged. And his second coming is the judge. His first coming was to bear the weight of the law of God, the full extent of it. It was to bear upon his shoulders the entirety of our condemnation under that same law. He says, I have come to be judged. Me, on your behalf. Which is why he can say, I did not come at first to judge. I came to be judged. I have come to live a life of perfect, perpetual, and personal obedience. That's what I came to do, my first coming. And to grant you that life of obedience so that you might be righteous before the very same God. He's distinguishing between two judgments. The first one wherein he was judged, and the second one where he does judge. Because the second one is where he comes to judge. And that's when he talks about verse 48. When he comes and makes all things right to bring those found in him to himself to vindicate those whom were judged in him. Saying, you were judged in me, you now come into eternal bliss. But if you're out of me, now is your judgment. For judgment comes to those it has not yet come upon. Because there is no representative for them in the first judgments. Now he's saying, now you've got to walk up to the bar of justice. And who's your mediator? Vindication, on the other hand, comes to those of you who were judged, not will be judged. And that's where Jesus goes to end this. Because my guess is every single one of you struggles with assurance. Because I struggle with assurance. Does God really love me? Did God really save me? Am I really part of this elect? I doubt. I fear talking about my faith with other people. Does that really mean I'm a Christian? For those of you who struggle with your assurance, your profession is probably weak. You do not take every opportunity to present the gospel to people. And you know it. And you feel it. And you wonder, 
if I were really a Christian, if I really believed this, I would tell everybody I knew. And yet I don't. I think the word vindication is for you. That you have no second judgments. He's not judging you based off how you did when he saved you. He's like, now, how'd you deal with this that I just gave you? How'd you deal with this? It's not how you're judged. How you're judged is if are you found in him or are you not found in him? For you outside of Christ who think no judgment's going to come upon me, or if one does, I'm going to be found pretty good. I, I did some good stuff in this life, and it might outweigh the bad. Right? I've done pretty well, and God looks on the heart, right? And he's going to see a pretty good, pretty healthy heart. I love people as much as I can. <laughs> the problem is he does look at your heart. And he looks at it better than you can. And what does he see in your heart? He sees absolute filth and unrighteousness. That's what he sees. You better not hope he looks at your heart. You better not hope he looks at your mind. You who are outside of Christ, we're not in the first judgment. You have not been judged yet. And you might think that's pretty good news. But your judgment's coming. It's coming fast. Your judgment will be rendered when he comes again. As he says... I will judge them on the last day. That can seem really far off until it's not. And for you who are in Christ, that last day was pulled forward. And you were judged in that last day in Christ so that on that last day, you'll be free. So Jesus speaks the word, the commandment in verse 50 as we conclude. That word is for you. For you who are in Christ. That, this word is for you. It's a wellspring of life, those who are found in Christ. Your confession is not based on your obedience. Not based on how well you do. Not based on how well you obeyed. It's a fruit, but it's not the basis. And it's not even how strong your faith is. It's not how much you worked it out. It's not how big it is compared to somebody else's small faith. It's not even on the immensity and the intensity of your doubts. The less doubts you have, the better Christian you are. The less you struggle, the better Christian you are. It's upon the object, it's upon Christ. That is the, that is the only sufficient basis for your salvation. For what Jesus speaks to you, get this, the Father speaks to you. When the Son speaks, the Father speaks. When the Father speaks, the Son speaks. And they speak that to you. On the authority of the Father, through His Son Jesus, and the application of the Holy Spirit, He says to you, I have done all that was needed according to my law. Enjoy the life that my servants has merited for you. That is all He says. You who are weary, whose faith seems thin and when tested doesn't look all that great. You who wonder, will my faith last? Is my, is my faith going to endure? He says, it's not yours, it's me. I will endure. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you have given us these glorious truths that this life of faith 
though tested and strained, that we could look upon you and your work, not upon our obedience, not upon our merits, not even upon how well we do in evangelizing the others, which is so often how we compare our faith, nor our thought life, nor the, the, the desires of our hearts, though they're changed. Lord, that is, that is not what you base our faith on. You base it upon the object of Christ. May we look to him. May those outside of him look to him and find in him full assurance that he has done everything, that he did not waver, that he did not doubt. He pushed and he obeyed and he obeyed for us. Lord, we thank you for this. All in your son's name. Amen.